Uh, welcome to Beastly Theories. I'm Andy McGrath, your host. And today we have a very special guest, Christopher Turner. Uh, Chris is a documentary filmmaker who's been working in and around the alternative media for 10 years. He's met and interviewed many of the most recognized researchers in the alternative field, including David Icke, James Bartley, Simon Parks, Mary Rodwell and Paul Sinclair. He's currently a member of the British Bigfoot Research Group, director of Don't Mention the Reptilians, Elusive and the Bempton Phenomenon. He's currently working on a number of new documentary films. Chris, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm very good, mate. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm a, a little bit knackered. As I said before we went live, you're my 18th interview in a row <laughs> <laughs> out of 20. But it's been good fun and also good to get to know, you know the researchers and, and what they what they think, what they believe about this whole genre. Now, in all cases, a paranormal obsession, just to get us started. Nobody ever starts off their career intending to um, plow the lucrative fields of monster movies today. So oh, what was yeah. it that dragged you away from the financially secure mainstream and into the barren waste of alternative media? Uh, as with most people that get into this field with, you know, with no prior experience, uh, it was just, just happened by chance. I just happened to be friends with, a guy that was into this paranormal, supernatural ufology, really. That, that was his interest. And it's, it's kind of infectious. I think once you dip your toe into this, if you're that way inclined, you can soon get overwhelmed by it, and you do. That's exactly what happens. I speak to, as you know, I've, I've met and interviewed many people in the last 11, 10, 11 years. And generally, if you're not an experiencer or you're, or you're not a witness, a lot of that, this sort of uh, infectious sort of uh, desire, really, to get to the bottom of the truth. I think that's, I've always asked that question, Andy. I've always wondered, what is it about people like me that drives us to want to know at all, and sometimes at all costs? I mean, for the last, as you mentioned, being this being a lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> it was in, it was in, uh, Parenthesis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sort of the tongue in your cheek there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it was really, and always has been, really about getting to the truth. Just, I think, just one of them people that I just want to know. And I think even though there's a, quite a large part of me that knows that the likelihood of that being, you know, ever being resolved and us ever knowing anything, getting any nearer to the truth is very unlikely. However, it, it doesn't stop us. So I think what really made me delve deeper into this wasn't just an interest in it i as you might know i had a a job working on uh, i was a compositor a visual effects artist and i worked in in a lot of mainstream tv and a lot of quite exciting shows really and i thought that that was really what i wanted to do but it, it was it was dragging me away from the subject because I'd been involved in very, I mean, I'm in low budget filmmaking now, but I, before that I was in absolutely no budget filmmaking territory at that time. Uh, and it just, I was missing it. I really missed, you know, meeting the people, getting, going to conferences, I guess just meeting interesting people because being in the world of visual effects and, you know, you're meeting producers and the glamour soon wears off. It doesn't, honestly, it really doesn't take long before that, that spell just just <laughs> fades away as you're spending more and more time away from your family and yeah. uh you know it's whilst it's a, a, quite an, it can be an exciting job and an interesting job uh it just wasn't for me so i i quit promptly actually i was missing my family and i just said no you know what 
I'm not going to do it. And I went straight back into uh, part-time work and I went back into just investigating strange phenomena, you know, for the most part in ufology circles. That's really where, where I started this journey. Now, there's, there's one aspect of that, actually, I, I think that impacts upon one of the, the films of yours I thought was very interesting, which was, uh, it's got a strange title, Don't Mention the Reptilian. So for, for people out there who don't know what a reptilian is, what is a reptilian and, and why shouldn't we mention them? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that title was a bit tongue-in-cheek and it was, as I found very recently, the cryptid research is also another niche market. And the title was coined from uh, David Icke. That was one of his mm. phrases. And it was a, another, another Alec, a guy called Alex Collier that said something very similar. So I just, you know, people in the know, so to speak, of that subject knew what I was, what I was getting at. Mm -hmm. uh, but also the reptilian subject, it was strange in the UFO community and ufology. It seemed to me that the typical grey alien that we're familiar with, that you know, through through the modern culture, uh -huh. is readily accepted as you know, you know, as as yeah, as a possibility they exist, and if they do exist, that's pretty much what we expect them to look like. But you drop anything different, and you'll probably know this yourself from Sasquatch research. Mm -hmm. If you drop the Sasquatch into a UFO conversation, because they are not grey, three foot tall, and with black eyes. Uh, not alien yeah. uh, and that was very similar for, for the reptilian thing it was just dismissed and I guess <laughs> obviously and they are, I I'm a glutton for punishment because <laughs> from, from from the reptilian subjects and I went on you know I went on to try and prove the existence of Bigfoot in the UK so yeah. both tasks was were quite difficult however it, they were both very similar in the fact that in the UK and in Europe, particularly, the the surface had barely been scratched about that that type of phenomenon. Yeah. So that's really how I got into the reptilian stuff. And then before that, I had been introduced to David Icke, uh, some of his not necessarily the more conspiratorial research yeah. that he'd been doing. Because although he's got a big following, and that was his sort of the BBC made it known that that's that's what he would, you mm. know. He's known for reptilians and nothing else. No one really wants to talk about any any of the other uh, consciousness research that he does. Uh, that the sort of reptilian thing came second, actually, to the consciousness research. So, with ufology being an interest of mine, you know, right from from being from being pretty young, I'm, and I'm I'm not one of those guys that's ever had some sort of amazing experience. I've never I've no abduction experiences or contact experiences, which is what I get asked a lot. Mm. Uh, I've had one or two unusual occurrences, but nothing that, you know, I would say is, you know, definitely ET related, uh, potentially supernatural, just, just, just different. Certainly falls into the category of the woo. Let's, let's say that. Okay. Okay. That's, that's quite interesting. Actually talking about interviewing David Icke, um, quite interested in that. You say he's spoken about this reptilian subject for many years and also other forms of consciousness and um, worldwide conspiracies and, and things like that. And I'm only barely familiar with his stuff. I've, I've listened to some. How do, how do you recognize, how do you ro logically reconcile such strange claims of reality, like the ones he makes to everyday life, 
And did you find yourself being convinced or, or affected by his claims when you were interviewing him? I think what David Icke does and other researchers like David simply ask you to sort of just expand your horizons, just sort of look outside the, the box. And even within this subject, I did a, an interview recently where I was talking about people putting things in boxes for no good reason. I guess we could tie this into any of the phenomena that both you and I look into, anything supernatural or paranormal. There's this tendency, there's probably seven or eight boxes that these things are all put into and that they're securely, you know, fenced off from one another. They shouldn't, you know, they should never mix these things. Ironically, they, they tend to share a lot of the same... Uh, <laughs> The what I would say, perhaps a word I'm looking for is that they they seem to <clears throat> use the same mechanisms, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, let's take cameras for, for as a, just as a randomly as an example. You want to take a picture of a UFO. You take a camera out. It's, it's not going to happen. You put the camera away. Out comes the UFO. You can say the same, absolutely the same about Sasquatch. <laughs> you go out there with a camera. You're just not going to see one. You put the camera away, out they come. And then does that go for the fairies? It, I think it goes for all the phenomena mm. fall into, into these categories. We can say that about them. It's sort of like they're, they're, they're so evasive. And at, at times you do feel like you're being played with. You, the, it's almost like the phenomena is observing and mm -hmm. sort of monitoring us. You know, we're out there trying to do our best to sort of find any evidence, any proof of their existence. And all the while, it just feels like we're just being observed. And the minute that we we try and capture any data, whether that be audibly or video or any of the things that the Sasquatch researchers mm. or, you know, ufologists try, just we get little bits. We always seem to just get a little bit just to just to wet our appetites. But it's, uh, you know, it's it's never nothing. That's what I've found, in the, particularly in the uh -huh. last few years. You never get absolutely nothing. There's always just a little bit of something. And, of course, a lot of this is hearsay. But I think with the David Icke stuff and, and those guys that looking into consciousness and just asking people to just be more aware, I just recognised that when I was looking around, even amongst my you know friends and family, that, they were very close-minded, uh, you know, and ironically didn't seem to think that they were. And it was only when that you were introducing them to these sort of subjects and different and new mm -hmm. concepts, even concepts widely uh, discussed and theorized by mainstream science, that they were really uncomfortable about it. And I guess you might say that the reptilian and, and the Bigfoot stuff, it's a very taboo subject. Mm. A, a very taboo. People get really uncomfortable really quickly. I found, and that as a filmmaker, of course, that makes that's great because you can get gold with that sort of stuff, yeah. uh, or not. Sure. <laughs> and depends. some of the, I'm assuming, you know, some of the witnesses you interviewed about uh, reptilian encounters. What kind of feeling did you get from them? I mean, as a filmmaker who's interviewed now, you know, probably hundreds of people over the years. You've probably got a, a really good key into when somebody is telling you the truth or and when somebody is hoaxing or when somebody believes something that actually isn't real but somehow for whatever mental state that they find themselves in 
this imagined experience has taken place. So how do you differentiate between these two people? You know, people that perhaps need a, a little extra help, people who are hoaxing you, and people who've really, really seen something. What are the markers in uh, their testimonies that stand out to you? That's very difficult. This is a very difficult one. I think a lot of it's there's a lot of gut feel in there. Probably experience comes into it at first because when I when I got into this initially, right at the very beginning, you tend to take people on the word. I think it, you know, in the end, that's all we have for the mm -hmm. most part, particularly in in these circles. Uh, there are elements uh, that I particularly look for. I mean, a lot of a lot of the deeper research delves into sort of bloodlines, particularly with abductions and UFO contact. Uh -huh. uh, it's often runs in families and uh, there are certain genetic markers, sometimes uh, blood types, that kind of thing. But there was one particular case really that, that I've discussed actually recently where I was contacted whilst I was making the reptilian film, a girl from America contacted me and she was about, I think she was 30 years old at the time, and she sent me a, a very unusual image of some sort of entity. And what had happened is she and the children had been having abduction type experiences. Uh, she'd been having them since childhood, a sister mm -hmm. had since childhood, and it, it had continued uh, down the bloodline, down the generations. And they'd been telling the father, she'd been telling her husband all about this, this stuff. And he just really, really did not want to know. He, he genuinely believed that they were making it up because that's what this phenomena does. It's sort of, again, it's that, it's that observation. They seem to observe and know exactly almost playing mind games. And that's, that is mind games is, is a, is a large part of the abduction phenomena, actually. Uh, <coughs> sorry, sorry, excuse me. That's okay. <coughs> yeah. I'll start that again. So you can can you, you can cut that, can you? Uh, no, I'm not cutting anything. But uh, I'm anything. just running. But it's okay. A bit of coughing is fine. I want the people <laughs> listening to us to know that we get froggy throats and um and everything. Oh, <laughs> no worries. Uh, average general people, you know, I, I can slice and dice. But with that thing you were saying there about um, them the mind games being a big important part of it. Um, there was that theory about um in this reptilian uh, world about them feeding on fear. Yeah, Is that yeah. right? Something about feeding on fear and, and you know, sort of yeah. ties into all sort of ritualistic and satanic groups and things like that too. What, what's the crossover there? Well, I'll just finish the that story from there because that sort oh, yeah, of leads yeah, yeah, into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. essentially what happened is this, uh, she, her husband worked on the oil rigs in three months stints. So he was away at sea uh, for three months at a time. And probably once, once every couple of weeks she would record a video on the phone and send it to him because um, this is a few years ago this is uh, uh, quite a while before sort of like the internet had uh, evolved into what it is now and upon receiving this video all he could see behind her he could see this entity in the screen behind her and he's 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 watched the video rang home immediately to check on on the children and she knew automatically because he never phoned. He never phoned home. So when he phoned home and said, I'm coming home, sort of like, as soon as I can get home, she knew there was something wrong. Anyway, he arrived home and he, he showed her what she'd filmed. Unknowingly, she, she hadn't seen it. So at this point, 
she was sort of relieved. Her and the children were absolutely actually relieved at this time because they thought that this was it. They would have his support. But he actually went the other way. He, he actually went deeper into denial upon seeing this. And it just goes to show that this phenomena, sometimes I think we for, I forget how normal it, it is to me. And, know what, and, and I forget what a taboo subject it is to most people. So for him to have that experience and react in that way, I mean, it must have been very frightening for him as well. And that, uh, this sort of case is ongoing. I still get emails from this, from this lady now, uh, updates about how, how things are happening. And these things, these events are still happening. Uh -huh. uh, and there's a lot of psychological, as you say, this, this sort of the reptilian subjects, I guess what I have learned in the last few years is that it's nobody's real. I mean, David Icke's, a lot of David Icke's research, people call it fear-based. Uh, it's sort of David's and, and people like James Bartley, for example, who look into the darker subjects, uh, satanic cults, this sort of reptilian research, the djinn, uh, dark magic, that sort of stuff. Whenever, whenever anyone starts to expose that sort of stuff, they get accused of being, you know, a fear monger. Mm. Whereas, of course, all they're trying to do is, is just inform people. Uh, and it, what David had delved into and tied together, that a lot of the, again, going back to the uh, similarities that these that phenomena shares, and as you say, this sort of feeding on negative energy mm. and inducing fear seems to be part you know the, there's the old uh well-known one the succubus uh in oh, paranormal yeah. circles that would yeah. sit on the chest of, of, of the victim and, and sort of drain energy from them uh and, you know the sleep par paralysis as well mm -hmm. you can tie all that into it and again i think that's of course sleep paralysis that's a huge debating point in this in this field but overall essentially I think when, when you look at David Icke's research and you are looking and you tie in certain symbolism and you tie in certain groups uh, and certain markers that we probably can't talk about, it's probably a little bit too dark, but it's evident in ufology that a lot of this is, is, is very relevant uh, and there's cross-correlation there for sure. Uh, but that was kind of one of the reasons that I got out of reptilian research actually because there was this sort of hunger for, for sensational sensationalism around it they wanted okay. yeah they sort of wanted it to be sensationalism they wanted it all to be fear and darkness yeah, yeah. and whilst a lot of it is you know there there are benevolent uh et races out there uh, i mean i'm certainly on board with the i've been in this in these circles 10 11 years it's for me i don't really think it's something that we really debate anymore in ufology Ab et abductions and et contact cases are not really debated uh within the field that much anymore you know years ago it would be lights in the sky and uh, nuts and bolts mm -hmm. craft and things have kind of moved on and i think the research has sort of evolved and there are a lot of uh, again i guess correlations with this supernatural side of cryptid research i guess i would say which is sort of i don't know whether that's given me a slight bias i mean i have talked about that that before with you i think yeah that we all come into these subjects with a bias regardless you know even though as a filmmaker you're trying to 
depending on what angle you're taking, a lot of the time you're trying to stay neutral, you're trying to stay in the middle. Uh, but that's it's, sometimes that's very difficult to be on sure, the sure. fence. It, uh, in, and at times it just feels unnatural. Uh, so I just sort of let my projects, I just pretty much go where the research takes me. Uh, and I did that with the reptilian film and the reptilian film ended up, there's a sequel to that coming just because I found very much like the cryptid research that you can't cover this subject in 90 minutes. It's just, you can't actually scratch the surface and you know that. Uh, guys have been in these fields that I work with for 35, 40 years. And I know you interview a lot of guys in, in the cryptid research that have got the same experience. And probably a lot of, of them will tell you what I'm saying is that from a personal perspective, you grow as a researcher and you, you learn and you become less naive. But in terms of evidence, uh, hard evidence, you know, that just, you know, it just isn't there, really. I mean, I, I mean, they're mysteries for a reason, right? Um, we haven't discovered these creatures. Let's talk about, let's say it's Bigfoot or whatever. I haven't discovered them because they're hard to discover and that it's not a proof that they're there but the concept of them not being found ties in really well with their elusiveness right um and i think that that's why i really enjoyed the name you chose for that documentary about the british bigfoot uh i just thought that was very interesting i, I do want to talk about elusive actually but one thing i wanted to ask you about the conspiracy theories and the secret societies and um you know people that, that listen to that kind of stuff a lot and get too emotionally invested in those end of the world type theories. Yeah. Do you think they end up feeling a bit hopeless and helpless, you know, because you're suddenly made aware of all of this terrible stuff going on that inevitably you can really do nothing about. Um, you can be informed, but I often used to think, you know, in the old days, in the, the early days of Infowars and things like that, or uh, listen to Paul Joseph Watson or, or David Icke or whoever, uh, that you do sort of end up feeling, oh, it's all hopeless and there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you're you right. I think, and that's probably why these guys get tagged with the fear mongering uh, issue because I see it, I get it. And I, I totally understand why why people feel that way. And that's actually one of the reasons that I came away from, from the negative part of alien research, we'll call it. And I say alien, I'm, I'm using that term pretty loosely because we don't know. The truth is we don't know what we're dealing with. We're just using very, again, going back to the cryptid research, we're just throwing terminology about here. Uh, and I am one of those guys that I think if you look at the hard veteran researchers in ufology and you and if you take a good serious look at what's unfolded in the last, I'd say, 60 or 70 years, you could say and you probably should say that a soft disclosure has happened within industry, within science, within aerospace, people like Ben Rich, who, you know, who was the CEO at Skunk Works and that sort of thing, would drip feed into public consciousness about, you know, the existence of, of, of ETs. Uh, and you hear about this all the time uh, in science as well. And you'll hear, uh, again, you'll hear a lot of science terminology 
being thrown about in all of these circles. I think it's a strange one, really, Andy, because we we get accused of not using the scientific method, don't we, a lot in yeah. Probably oh, yeah. in all of this supernatural research, but yet when you throw things like uh, the human the human eye sees, I don't know, one point five percent of visible light, for example. Mm. When you throw that into an argument, oh well, no, well, no, <laughs> what I can talk about. So what you're saying, so there's nothing else in that ninety eight point five percent. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> no, we can't have a discussion like that. And that's that's what happens. No, there's no serious discussion going on about this sort of stuff. Again, it's a very, I think you also learn, and, and I had to relearn, should I say, going into the cryptid research, because all that sort of water off a duck's back attitude where you have to sort of brush this sort of oh, yeah. negativity off and this <laughs> constant uh, attempts to debunk, debunk, debunk. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was used to that in ufology, and I, naively, I came into cryptid mm. uh, research. It's <laughs> a whole different level. Oh, absolutely. Uh, level. Well, it's no different, to be honest, mate. It is absolutely no different. Uh, it is just as volatile and just Did as... Did you risky. imagine there would be some sort of um, uh, unanimity amongst the, the community that people would be, yeah, you know what, you're researching this, I'm researching that. Let's hook up and exchange some details and information and help each other out do you imagine they, i mean there is some of that of course but did you imagine there would be more cooperation within the community absolutely yeah. I, I did a little bit and I, I think and the reason i think i thought that and that's not necessarily untrue really when you think about your circle of friends and your circle yeah. of researchers that you that you trust shall we say and converse with uh i think every area of the paranormal or the supernatural has its bad apples, should we say? Mm-hmm. And as ever, there's obviously there's financial, <laughs> there's the financial aspect of this, uh, the money making part of this, because yeah. it, again, it's uh, from America, it has turned into sort of a business. Yeah, and a lot of people scoff at that, and a lot of people really don't like that. I think in especially in the UK, yeah, especially in the UK, it's really frowned upon that you should make money from anything that you're you're spending you know 98 percent of all of your time and money doing the fact that you should get some sort of return from that is incalculable you know it's unbelievable how um money grabbing you could be <laughs> two years in to filming your your documentary elusive for example which we should talk about i think it's a wonderful documentary two years you filmed that for you traveled around the country tackled that taboo subject we're talking about in the uk the british bigfoot and um and why should you get any return on it, right? You put the video out. Why should people have to pay for that? Know, that yeah. thing that you produced <laughs> and put together, why should it cost anything? Uh, well, I've got Prime. Why can't I just stream it unlimited, you know, that, that kind of thing? Or it's, it's, it's a different world we live in. You obviously, you're, you, you've got a lot more media experience than me, especially in film. But the the desire to have constant content for free because that's exactly essentially what happens in all sort of schools everywhere these days is so strong. I think one with the Americans perhaps especially it encourages people to make more of the evidence they have than they should do, or to um, overinterpret you know uh, signs and, and and different things that they have because 
they've got a podcast or they've got a page that people are donating to, you know, with a, a GoFundMe or a, a Patreon or whatever, you know, that you want content every day, all week long. I think it's, um, it's, although it's great that it brings a lot of attention to the genre, it's damaging as well, because obviously scrupulous people see opportunities and they'll, they'll take them. Um, let's just, just talk, talk about Elusive, actually. Now, two years, you're traveling around the country, Clearly, you know, you met a lot of people along the journey. Tell us about some of the people you met and um, and your opinions of, of the things they told you about the British uh, Bigfoot. What kind of evidence did you discover? <clears throat> well, I think what I would say, I probably should start off by saying that in the ufology research, I did interview a few witnesses that were, let's say, disingenuous. <laughs> so... And actually, the, 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 one of the first people that I interviewed for Elusive, uh, I very quickly found was sort of uh, attention-seeking uh, without getting too deep into that and had to be sort of, you know, just cut from the project. Uh, and that, again, coming into, again, my naivety showed coming into that sort of cryptid research because I, I really, really wasn't expecting that at all. So I guess I didn't really get off on the right foot, really. I was sort of on the back foot from the very start. So, you know, I was a little apprehensive, but with with any of this research, you just have to you just have to knock on doors and you just have to be feet on the ground these days. And it's not enough to be conversing over the Internet with witnesses sometimes, particularly when, you know, you're relying on them really because there's a lot of pressure as a filmmaker if i was to put someone that turns out to be disingenuous and a hoaxer for example into a film with seven other who i consider you know really valid credible witnesses you know that's that potentially could be very damaging to to everybody involved in that project so yeah i had to be very cautious but fortunately the next person i met was deborah hatswell who had her experience 34, 35 years ago. Ironically, very close to where I live. So it seemed like a logical step to go meet Deborah. And I didn't know at that time the amount of research that Deborah had been doing in that 35 years. She had been, you know, real old school uh, mm. veteran techniques of pins in boards and pins on maps and, you know, uh, notepads filled you know you name it you know everything newspaper clippings and archives and the lot yeah absolutely really old school uh i guess you could call it hardcore research i would say very similar to a guy also involved with with uh elusive paul sinclair and it's being around these people uh that you can't their enthusiasm really it sort of rubs off on you you really and i guess that's that's what happened. I met Deborah. We did that. It's such a, an amazing interview as a filmmaker. It's an amazing interview. You, you know, but she during that interview, it's very powerful. If you, a lot of you, if you've not seen that interview, there is a, a snippet of that on YouTube. If you if you can't afford to to watch Elusive on Vimeo, then go on to my YouTube channel and you can see a portion of that interview with Deborah Hatzel where she's reliving her experience of when she saw what we've dubbed uh, the British wild man. And she's, uh, it's quite heartbreaking. But I, 
at that time, the hairs on my arms was and was standing up. Uh, and I walked out of that house that day, and I knew that one, it wasn't going to be a three-month project mm-hmm. because she, the the amount of information that Deborah had, there was, I knew there was just no way that I could I could do a quick fix yeah. on this. It, you know, I. I had done the same with the reptilian film. I should, again, again, naivety coming into it where, oh, a quick project, I'll, I'll turn this around because from a, a financial standpoint, I can't afford it to be another year. No, so I ended up making it over two years. Uh, just because there's just so much ground to cover, there's so many witnesses, and as the film went on, more and more witnesses came out of the woodwork, which was my you know it was i think after speaking to deborah that was sort of our intention really yeah we knew or i knew as a filmmaker that very much like the the reptilian subject which is now growing very very fast the interest in that sort of research now has gone through the roof and i'm hoping uh for a similar thing about cryptid research here in the uk Mm -hmm. it seems to be heading that way yes we are getting negative elements creeping into it as as you know, when anything gets sort of popular, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, that sort of thing happens. But, you know, I, I the witnesses and the people involved in this film, you, yourself included, I think it's really, I've said it before, it's sort of really the first film that I've been really proud of in, in a way. Proud of the fact that I, I feel that I've done the people involved justice. I haven't sort of spun it any particular way i've let it just run its course i haven't sensationalized it there are many pieces of as you know there are many pieces of evidence there are things that i could have included that i didn't there are things that i wanted to include but i couldn't and that's the other hard part of being a filmmaker when somebody shows you a photograph that you are pretty much certain is a genuine photograph of a of a wild man or a bigfoot and you well they won't let you use it in the production and as a, that's heartbreaking as a filmmaker you, you the whole objective here is to uh, i mean ironically why did you show me this yeah. <laughs> it's strange though isn't it because when you ask the audience after after they've watched any film about aliens or cryptids or a ghost or anything supernatural and 99 percent of the time they know going into that, they're, they're very unlikely to be convinced one way or another. They're very unlikely to see anything groundbreaking. However, we still have that desire to really watch these uh, films unfold and watch this, this, particularly with Elusive, because it's. I don't think I really necessarily put the two-year journey across as I could. I mean, the film would have ended up being three hours if I'd have done that. Mm-hmm. I mean, for my liking, the film's a little bit long anyway, as I felt from a from a, a filmmaker's perspective. Uh, but I think overall, the feedback that I've received, and anyway, I get emails of people saying, no, I'm really, I'm really, I really enjoyed it because I wasn't expecting to enjoy it. Even from people who, I won't say any names, but there are people that I thought would hate it that have emailed me and said, do you know what? It was, it was all right. Good. And I don't, know what, I don't know what spin affected me. To put. I, I think that's what perhaps some of my early debates in the research, maybe two years yeah. ago, I got into some, as you probably did. Well, like, I mean, yeah. 
there's a lot of opposition, I think, in the British research community to this animal um, actually being present here at all. And in the early days, you had to deal, as I have, with some of the objections to that. Um, yeah. What I'd be interested in, actually, is, is um, what were some of the most common objections that you had to deal with about there being a British Bigfoot when you make this film? And, and what evidence convinced you that it really might be here? I think the evidence that convinced me that it might be here is probably based around the witnesses uh, and the amount of witnesses, mm-hmm. uh, the correlations within the, the, the witness statements, uh, the credibility, the, the, the I'd say the, the broad range of, of witnesses from you know, of housewives to children to military personnel, you know, to doctors. You know, it, it really spans a board, really. Uh, in terms of physical evidence, and that's a hard one, isn't it? it, it that, that is really where the debate starts, you know, for a lot of uh, debunkers and a lot of sceptics. And I'm totally on board with the sceptics. I, I totally understand. They're important. Absolutely. It, it, yeah. it, is, it is absolutely vital because if, if they weren't around... I don't know where we would be in this. Oh gosh, I, I would dread, be, dread to think. Bigfoot uh, would be pulling up into the centre of town on the back of a UFO, <laughs> you know, and jumping off on his unicorn steed. I, I think it could go that far, because um, I always said that this uh, this area of research, and this is why I think it, it quite clearly connects to the fact you did something about reptilians and ufology, and then something about Bigfoot. And the, the next thing you, you did recently, which we get on to, is that uh, it's a multi-denominational uh, school of thinking. And you know, there is, um, you might think sometimes uh, that somebody's in the same denomination as you, because they've mentioned Bigfoot. You soon find out that they're not. So it's something you saying, oh, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. Uh, where do you go to church? And they say, I go to the Catholic Diocese of blah. I say, oh, I'm a Baptist, you know. We already know that we're incredibly different from that very first uh, opening sentence. That we're not interested in the same thing at all. Actually, it just has the same name, um, and I think it's the same in this community. You know, you you find sometimes you find very good friends that think very differently to you, uh, but when people have a fixed world view that affects everything that they look at, I can be guilty of that too. Then it's you know it, it's hard to um, it's hard to to find common ground. Now, yeah. Talking about stuff like that, I thought we should mention the the uh, sticks and stones. Uh, yeah, there seems to be a large amount of stick structure yeah. here in the UK oh, and yeah. worldwide. And um, actually, you know, if you looked at a lot of the Bigfoot pages, you could be and didn't look at the title Bigfoot, you could be convinced that we were just some sort of wood enthusiasts. And by wood, I mean sticks, not woods or forests. Just like you know, funny sticklings and uh, things like that. Uh, why do you think people are so convinced that there are evidence of Bigfoot and not just bushcraft or forestry works and, and tree falls, etc.? Yeah, well, I think probably people listening to this who know me are probably rolling their eyes now because they know what I think <laughs> the, the stick structures, and I, I think it's probably the weakest form of evidence that we've got in. In relation to the Sasquatch uh, and K2 
Canada and North America. Those those places and the structures, they're vast. They're mm. absolutely vast. And I think we'll touch on that in a minute. But the stick structures sometimes get compared almost like these things are identical and they're really not. And, that, and that's my understanding of it. And there are people out there, we don't all have to agree on this. Yeah. Uh, I certainly think there are similarities. I will say that. And I, I, I certainly think that, that it is worth looking into. But whoever starts to look into it, I think Michael Appleby is one of the guys from the British Big Books that's looking into that. That is a big job and a very, in my in my opinion, a very difficult job because you don't have that wilderness here. Yes, I've had this debate with many people that Britain isn't as small as, as it's depicted. You know, it's, it's small in comparison to the massive places like Russia and America, yeah. China, and of course. Uh, but we, our problem is that a lot of the researchers and, on, and armchair and part-time researchers and, and myself included very early doors were not getting into remote places in Britain. You know, I think a, a British person's idea of somewhere remote is, I don't know, a mile from anywhere. You know, if you if that makes sense. And we, we've talked before about this. 30 about, minutes from Starbucks, end of the world. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and very similar to walking. For example, you'll get a sighting in a particular wood that someone's frequented for the last 30 years walking the dog. This guy's been walking the path, you know, he's been walking the, uh, the cobbles through, through the wood. He hasn't gone off that, those cobbles in 30 years, but yet he knows that wood like the back of his hand. And this is the sort of mentality that you get. However, I do understand when Americans talk about our structures over here and say, well, that's probably somebody camping because yeah. for the most part, and probably 99% of the time it, it is someone camping or it's deadfall or it's wind damage or it's, you know, just dead trees dying. It's, you know, we're coming into winter. You know, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a very, it's marshland. It's very wet. You know, the tree fell over.